Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back with you once again. This is our last study of the servant songs. Make your way to Isaiah 52. In our book on the end times, I told of an event that took place back in December of 1927. A Navy S-4 submarine was conducting submerged trials. Night was about to fall off of the coast of Massachusetts, and as this submarine surfaced, it collided with the United States Coast Guard destroyer. The submarine quickly sank in 110 feet of water. Lifeboats were lowered from the Coast Guard vessel, but all that was found was a small amount of oil and some air bubbles. Rescue operations were started, but there was little that could be done. To make matters worse, a nor'easter was upon them, and the underwater currents blocked any attempts to rescue the six known survivors who were trapped in the forward torpedo room. The men had been able to exchange a series of signals with rescue divers by tapping on the hull. Using Morse code, the six men tapped out a question. It was the only question that mattered. Slowly, the message tapped out was, Is there any hope? Hope is a central part of life. Hope for a better future tugs at our hearts, and the cry of the heart of the redeemed is to be with our Savior for all eternity. And now as we come to the most well-known section of text in Isaiah, we see that in the fourth servant song, true hope is only found in the Messiah of Israel. The message contained in Isaiah 52 is that the Hebrew people were to take comfort and hope from knowing that their captivity in Babylon would come to an end. But it was more than just this. They could look forward to the day when the Messiah himself would come and rule and reign from Jerusalem. The day would come when the glorious city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. In verse 4, first it was the Egyptians who had enslaved them. Then it was the Assyrians taking over the northern tribes. And in verse 5, the text is referring to the current situation for the people, captivity in Babylon. But the message for the nation that starts in verse 6 is that there was hope for them. The day would come when the Lord would deliver his people, which is why we see the words of praise in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The watchmen in verse 8 are those that long for salvation. The day is coming down in verse 10 when all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Do you see the message of hope to the people of Israel still captive in Babylon in the text leading up to the four servants song? Now, here is why I brought us here. Here is why we are looking at this before we jump into our text. Notice verses 11 and 12. And as you look at this, remember that when they were in captivity, Babylon would be taken over by Medo-Persia. And Cyrus of Persia would allow the people to not only return, but they would be able to bring back to Jerusalem the vessels taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. For the Hebrew people of Isaiah's day, returning to their land was still in the future. Take a look at the text, starting with verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. 
For those that were with us, think back to our second study. Pay attention carefully to the last expression again. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. We saw before when Israel left Egypt in the book of Exodus that the Lord himself went before them in a pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness. And when Israel was up against the sea with the nation of Egypt bearing down on them, the Lord moved behind the nation of Israel to protect them from the Egyptians. It was Christ that guided the nation safely through the wilderness. The burning bush was Christ. The glory of God in the tabernacle, that was Christ. The glory of God in Solomon's temple, I believe the evidence suggests that this was Christ. Listen to Exodus 33, referring to the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Again, I believe the evidence of Scripture teaches that in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, it was the Lord Jesus Christ interacting with Adam and Eve. The point is, there were many different manifestations of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament for the purpose of teaching, instructing, guiding, directing, and protecting the people of God. And for the Hebrew people, this text in verse 12 of Isaiah would have been an instant reminder to them that Yahweh was with them when they left Egypt and that Yahweh would once again protect them and make sure that they return to their land. Before we get to our text, make your way over to Psalm 68. And as you turn, recognize that Psalm 68 is one of the Messianic Psalms. By my count, there are at least 14 Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while I am sure that he is represented in other Psalms as well, we know with certainty that the 14 are referring to Christ because the New Testament reveals this to us. In Luke 24, Christ is much stated that the laws of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all testify of Christ. And as you make your way to Psalm 68, remember that Peter stood up and testified at Jerusalem in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost that King David was a prophet of God. This is an important point and is something I cover more in depth in the book. And one of the main points that Peter makes in Acts 2 about the prophet David is that the messianic prophecies in the Psalms, they weren't about David, they were about Jesus, the Christ. The church today has gotten confused on this point. Peter teaches us in Acts 2, the Psalms contain messianic prophecies that have nothing to do with David. He was the prophet, not the fulfillment. And to make his point, Peter said that David was dead. His tomb was there. David wasn't resurrected. David didn't ascend into heaven. So how could David be the fulfillment of these predictions? He couldn't be. These were predictions of the death, resurrection, and ultimately the eternal kingdom of Christ. So at times what we're going to see is that David prophesied about the coming Christ. We're going to look at some of those in a little bit. But here he's actually looking back. Psalm 68, pick it up with verse 7. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, now based on our earlier studies, this is Christ leading the people through the wilderness. Verse 8, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. 
your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. In great power, the Lord led his people. Out of the abundance of his grace, God provided for them. I hope you're beginning to wrestle with and understand just how active the Son of God was in the life of Israel. God the Son is the servant of Israel. The one that led the nation in the wilderness, the one that provides for their needs, the one that fought for them in great power, he would now offer himself up to death to deliver them from the ultimate enslavement, the enslavement to sin. Make your way back to Isaiah, and let's go ahead and read our text. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is by far the most complete and majestic portrayal of the suffering servant. It describes his humiliation, his death, resurrection, and his exaltation. Even the Jewish Targum understands that this section of Isaiah's prophecy refers to the Messiah. Every detail of the prophet's words corresponds perfectly to the life and ministry of Jesus. The predictions contained in this prophecy recorded 700 years before the death of Christ are so specific it is impossible any mere man all on his own could have written them, and it is impossible 
that any mere man could have fulfilled them. This final servant song proves the inspiration of the Bible and the divinity of Christ. As we make our way through this text, notice some of the terminology used that points us to the suffering endured by the Messiah. Griefs, pains, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounded, and bruised. The bulk of the material deals with the suffering servant being rejected. But this is not the main point. The central message of this text is that the servant will be exalted. And that is exactly how the first verse starts out. Verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Notice the wording. Behold, God is calling attention to his servant. The temptation in verse 13 is to think that this is referring to the cross, but it is not. The first part of the verse is simply telling us once again that the servant will be prudent. He will do the will of the Father. And the idea of being exalted, extolled, and be very high means that the servant will be exalted to the right hand of God the Father. The servant would take a place of equality with God. We looked at Philippians 2 in our last study, where the Bible teaches us that God the Son took on a human nature. But the text continues there. It continues to speak of his exaltation. Listen to verse 9 of Philippians. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Without the exaltation of Christ, the cross would have been a failure. And this is why this final servant song starts and ends with a focus on the exaltation of Christ. This verse and verse 12 of chapter 53 are the bookends that help us to understand this text as God intended. Now, as we come to the heart of the text, the debate that has raged for 2,000 years between Jews and Christians is who does this text refer to? The Ethiopian eunuch even got in on the action in Acts chapter 8 when he asked Philip, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? When I first became a Christian, I used to wonder why the Jews don't see Jesus in this passage. Maybe you've wondered this too. They used to. In fact, even the Jews that lived before the ministry of Christ, they took this as a messianic text. For centuries, the Jews taught that the suffering servant of God in this text must be the Messiah. Many Orthodox Jews still hold to this. And the missing piece for them is that they do not understand or recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But by and large, most Jews today do not hold to the position that this text refers to the Messiah. And the two basic reasons they switch their position on this passage is first because of the Crusades. It all started to change in 1096 AD. It wasn't just the Muslims that were killed when the Roman Catholic Church launched the Crusades. Many Jews were massacred because they were labeled as the killers of Christ. Even in France, Italy, and Germany, Thousands were butchered, the synagogues were torched, and their possessions were taken from them. Two centuries of this type of persecution from people who claimed the name of Christ led many to revolt against anything that Christians believe. And so their interpretation of this text began to change. The other reason they changed their interpretation of this passage is because it was such a strong position, such a strong argument for the Christian faith that many Jews in the Middle Ages were actually converting to the Christian faith because of this text. And so the rabbis dug in their heels and started to teach that this passage does not refer to the Messiah of Israel. 
Philip answered the eunuch in Acts 8 when asked about this text, and Acts 8 tells us that Philip used this passage in Isaiah to preach Jesus to the eunuch. Dr. Maxwell Maltz was a famous plastic surgeon. He used to tell the account of a man who had been injured in a fire while attempting to save his parents' lives. He couldn't get them out. They both died, but in his attempt to rescue them, his own face was burned and disfigured. But this man wouldn't let anyone see him, not even his wife. He felt that God was punishing him. His wife went to see Dr. Maltz for help. After looking at all the reports, the doctor reassured the woman that he could restore his face. But the wife wasn't moved by this. Her husband had refused help repeatedly, and she knew he would again. But then why the visit? The doctor wanted to know. Listen to her response. I want you to disfigure my face so I can be like him. If I can share in his pain, then maybe he will let me back into his life. The doctor was simply shocked by this. He was so moved by this woman's love for her husband that he went to visit their home. He knocked on the man's bedroom door and called out, I'm a plastic surgeon, and I want you to know that I can restore your face. No response. Please come out. Still no answer. Speaking through the door, Dr. Maltz then told the man what his wife had proposed. She wants me to disfigure her face to make her face look like yours in hope that you will let her back into your life. That's how much she loves you. There was a brief moment of silence and then, ever so slowly, the doorknob began to turn. The love was strong between this woman and her husband, but even this cannot compare to the love of God for us. He took on our failures, our pain, our brokenness, our sin and imperfections. He became disfigured so that we might be reconciled to him. Take a look at verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Do not underestimate how disfigured the Savior was. People would be horrified. His body would suffer so much. He would hardly look human. The servant would suffer humiliation, just like the nation of Israel had. His suffering would be brutal. The suffering that the Messiah faced is disturbing, heart-wrenching, and difficult to comprehend. But the suffering was the path to glory. Notice verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. The suffering led to the cross. The suffering led to the sacrifice. Listen to the words from Hebrews 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The idea of sprinkling is that of cleansing. This points us to the great high priest, the Son of God. The kings in this text represent the people of the nations. And so the day is coming when the nations of the world will be stunned to realize that the sacrificial lamb of God is the creator, the savior, the one who died in order that men and women might be reconciled to God, that the servant died for the cleansing of sin. When the arrogant people of the world that reject Christ finally realize who Jesus is and what he has done, they will be appalled at how much they miss the truth. At the second coming of Christ, those who did not consider Jesus to be who he claimed to be, they will be astounded at the reality before them. 
Psalm 2 takes you in that direction. It is another messianic psalm written by David, and in it we see the nations, the kings of the earth, plotting against the Messiah. But then at the second coming of Christ, verse 9 of Psalm 2 testifies that the Messiah will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And therefore the instruction, the warning comes, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now listen closely, because a lot of people miss what I'm about to tell you. And it really sets the stage, helping us to understand the backdrop of Isaiah 53. The servant is still the Messiah, but the perspective is from the surviving nation of Israel after the tribulation. This is a prophetic picture of the people of Israel, astonished and in remorse at the second coming of Christ when the nation of Israel will finally recognize the Lord Jesus is the Messiah. This is the same subject matter that was prophesied in Zechariah 12. Listen to portions of that text. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, and the land shall mourn. The family of the house of Levi by itself, all the families that remain, every family by itself. The faithful remnant of Israel will mourn at the thought of what they did to their Messiah. Zechariah 13 tells us that during the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews will be killed, but one-third will survive. In today's numbers, the population of Israel is over 8 million meaning millions of Jews will die in unbelief. And so what we have in Isaiah 53, this prophecy presents their thoughts at that time. This is the remnant of Israel after the tribulation, and they are just absolutely stunned. Notice verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The people of Israel will be taken aback at the truth of the Messiah. Who would have believed it? The arm of the Lord refers to the power of God. Here it refers to the power of God to bring about salvation through his suffering servant. And really what you have in this text is that the people of Israel will be admitting that as a nation in the past, they had not believed the report that the lowly suffering servant is the Messiah of Israel. Make your way over to Psalm 118, yet another messianic psalm. Recognize that this was a song of praise. This was sung by the people of Israel at their festivals. This would have been sung by the people in celebration of the Passover. We even know that in the upper room at the Last Supper, according to Matthew 26, they sung a hymn. This psalm very well could have been that hymn. Down in verse 22, we read, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The imagery is rich. The stone, of course, being Christ. Even though he was rejected, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. For the sake of time, skip down to verse 25. Save now. In the Hebrew, this is literally Hosanna. Hosanna, I pray. O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The New Testament confirms these are the words shouted out to the Messiah in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
He was welcomed into Jerusalem as the Savior. The people knew that is what he was claiming to be, but remember what he said in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I say to you, listen, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23 looks to the day when instead of rejecting their Messiah, they will call out again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Make your way back to our text in Isaiah. Notice again, verse two, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Growing up before him refers to living his earthly life in the presence of God, and the tender plant helps us to understand his humble beginnings now that he had come in the flesh. He was like a small twig coming up out of the dry ground. The remnant of Israel will one day know that nothing about the Savior's appearance would naturally attract a large crowd. The root means that he came from the line of David. Coming out of dry ground means he came where he was least expected. He came amongst a people that rejected him. He came from a dry spiritual land where there was not a lot of belief. The legalistic rules of Judaism choked out the faith and the life of the people. He didn't look like a king, and so the nation didn't recognize him as their Messiah. He came as a baby not a king. He was born in a stable, not in a palace. And at times, even John the Baptist did not recognize his identity. The idea here is that they saw his humanity. He didn't stand out. The natural men and women of this world were not attracted to him. And this led to his rejection. Because a humble Messiah who is tormented and dies upon a shameful cross continues to be offensive to the Jewish people. Let's go ahead and grab the next two verses. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Remember, this is Israel in the future looking back. And they will one day recognize the sorrows, the grief, or anguish the Savior went through. The men and women of Israel did not esteem him. They dismissed him. They shunned him. He wasn't significant to them. They didn't bother giving him a second thought. And the wording is interesting in verse 3, that he was rejected by men. It means, actually, he was rejected by men of stature. The elite would not accept a man of humble origins. The old saying is that, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin leads to grief. Sin leads to sorrow. And the griefs and sorrows listed in verse 4 are the consequences of sin. It literally is the sickness of the soul. Jesus Christ took that upon himself. The teaching of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 21 was that anyone hung on a tree for their sin was a curse by God. So it is easy to see how the nation viewed him as smitten by God. But when the Jews crucified him, they did it because they thought he stood guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be God. 
but little did they know he was taking upon himself the punishment for their sin. As Peter testified, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, meaning he bore the guilt of our sins. But Israel turned away from him like you turn away from someone with a disease. The servant of God has been hated by the people of Israel like no other person in history. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people wouldn't even say his name, but instead they would refer to him as that man or the hanged one. Some of the Jewish scholars over the centuries have even stated that Jesus got the cruel death he deserved. Verse 5 gives us a beautiful picture of the substitutionary sacrifice. Israel will recognize one day why the Savior had to die. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. When the faithful remnant of Israel looks back, this will be their statement about the Savior. They will know and testify that their transgressions, their rebellion, along with ours, put the Savior upon the cross. His redemption brings peace between God and man and healing of the soul. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. Turn back to the Psalms, to one of the more famous Messianic Psalms, this time turning to Psalm 22. This is another passage that we just have to skim over for the sake of time, but I want to hit a few of the highlights. Pick it up with verse 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do you remember what happened on the cross? Matthew 27 quotes much of this psalm. The chief priests, the scribes, and elders mocked him while he was on the cross, saying he trusted in God, let him deliver him. In their unbelief, they didn't even realize they were fulfilling this prophecy of David. Skip down to verse 13. This is the prediction of the Messiah on the cross around 1,000 years before it happened. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And remember the words of Jesus when he said, I thirst. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Make your way back to Isaiah 53, and let your faith be strengthened by the remarkable prophecies of Scripture that were perfectly fulfilled in the Messiah. In verse 5, the text says, wounded or pierced through is the meaning. Some of the strongest words in the Hebrew language to represent a violent death, accurately predicting the death of the Messiah. The Jewish people will one day understand that Jesus took the penalty for their sins. They will understand their guilt before the Lord. Peter teaches us in 1 Peter that before our salvation in Christ, we were like sheep going astray. And according to verse 6 here in Isaiah, one day the nation of Israel will realize the same thing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The obvious figure of speech is that sheep sometimes just follow one another, which is dangerous in of itself, and that sometimes they just go their own way. Sin is really a rejection of God and his ways. 
Men and women without Christ go their own way. Sheep don't think ahead. They're just looking for the next clump of grass to chew on, not thinking about where their path will lead them and not thinking about the greater good of the entire flock. In many ways, we are no better. Listen to Matthew 9:36 again referring to Christ during his ministry. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Men want to be free, free from God and accountability. Men want to chart their own course without realizing they are in fact lost. The Lord's sovereign plan was that the consequences of our sin would be laid upon the chief shepherd of our souls. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is why Christ said in John 10, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Pick up our text in Isaiah again with verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Acts chapter 8 teaches us that verses 7 and 8 here in Isaiah is the section of text that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, and Philip explained to him that it refers to Christ. Some of this ground we covered before in our previous studies, that the suffering servant did not revile or threaten those that tortured him. If they would have known who he is, they would have feared him. They would have trembled before the Creator. But he suffered willingly, humbly, because of his love. Notice again in the middle of verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living, a bold prediction from Isaiah that the Messiah would die. This is the same type of reference that we see in Daniel 9:26. the Messiah shall be cut off. God declared it centuries before, but at that time, most of Israel wasn't listening. The idea in verse 8 of no one declaring his generations means he would be cut off in the prime of his life, and it seems to carry the idea that not many people in that day even gave much thought to his sacrifice. This was the plan of the Father. And look in verse 9 at how accurately the Word of God predicts that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, would provide a tomb for the Savior, even though he died next to criminals. This is perfectly fulfilled in Matthew 27. According to the traditions of the Jews and of the Romans, since he was considered to be a rebel, he would have been buried with the other criminals in an unmarked grave. But God intervened. Completely innocent, but handed over to death like a common criminal, the servant accepted the sentence. He gave his life for those that killed him. He gave his life for those that will believe in him. Our last three verses teach us, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
The servant poem is moving to end on a high note. The suffering and death of the servant was the sovereign plan of the Father. This was a deliberate act of God. Listen to Revelation 13.8. Speaking of Christ, that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He became an offering for sin. Literally here, guilt offering or trespass offering. Taking us back to the rich language of Leviticus 5 and the sacrificial offerings for sin. Remember, the guilt offering was for a person who sinned, and so therefore the teaching is that the servant of God made himself a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus had to die to satisfy the righteous demands of God, to atone for the sins of men. He shall see his seed, he shall see his offspring. John 1.12, those who believe in him become children of God. Same message over in Galatians 3. We are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and he shall prolong his days, meaning the death of On the cross was not the end of the road. Death could not hold him. He will live on forever as the eternal Son of God. Verse 11, this is Yahweh reflecting on the work of Christ on the cross, his suffering, his shame, his death. It led to life. It led to the resurrection. The righteous demands of God were satisfied. The substitutionary work of Christ on the cross was complete. And this is why Jesus could say in John 19, it is finished. Therefore, he can justify, declare righteous those who believe. He took the punishment for our sin so that we do not have to die eternally separated from God. He died, so we live. It is by faith alone in the knowledge of his redemptive work that men are saved. In our final verse, the message is, the servant followed the plan of the Father, and he is now exalted. The death of the servant of Israel opened the way for men and women to be reconciled to God. Justification comes through the blood of Christ, appropriated by faith. But after suffering comes vindication, and the Father did just this for the Son after the cross. Hebrews 12.2 Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore our sin, and now, seated at the right hand of the Father, he makes intercession for us. A portion with the great, the spoil with the strong. This picture is a general of an army after a victorious battle sharing in the loot taken from the enemy. I think the wording points us forward to the victorious Christ reigning in his future kingdom when the great men of the world will come and pay homage to the servant of God, the Messiah of Israel. George and Vera Bajansky, names that probably mean nothing to most of us, two missionaries united by their love for one another and their love for Christ. At the time, they were in Ontario, Canada, but then something happened that changed their lives forever. It was February the 16th of 1989, a normal Thursday morning. The phone rang at 9.15 a.m. There's been an accident where the words they heard on the phone. It involved their 14-year-old son, Ben. As they approached the intersection by the high school, they could see the flashing lights of the police cars and the ambulance. Vera noticed a photographer. She followed the direction of his camera to the largest pool of blood she'd ever seen. All that she could say was George. Ben went home, home to be with his heavenly father. Her first reaction was to jump out of the car and somehow try to collect the blood to put it back in her son. She later said, that blood, for me, at that moment, became the most precious thing in the world because 
It was life. It was life-giving blood, and it belonged in my son, my only son, the one I loved. So much. The road was dirty, and the blood just didn't belong there. George noticed that cars were driving right through the intersection, right through the blood. His heart was broken. He said he wanted to cover the blood with his coat and cry out, You will not drive over the blood of my son. Vera said that she understood for the first time in her life one of God's greatest and most beautiful truths in Scripture. Why blood? Because it was the strongest language God could have used. It was the most precious thing he could give, the highest price that he could pay. The Son of Man was lifted up on the cross for all to see, hung on the cross like a condemned criminal. He died this way because this is how God has chosen to reveal his love for sinners, and this is how he paid the price to set us free. This is love. This is grace. And this is life for all those who trust in the blood of Christ, in his death and resurrection for redemption. The servant of Yahweh is the Christ of Calvary and of the empty tomb. The servant of Yahweh went from shame to glory, death to life. He conquered by yielding. He will rule after having been enslaved. He lives after having died. And his glory streams upon the dark ground of his deepest humiliation. As the hymn declares, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 